I encourage you to open your copy of the scripture together with me this morning to 2 Samuel chapter 8. We are working our way through the book of 2 Samuel. And over the last couple of sessions in 2 Samuel, we devoted our time to chapter 7, which is one of the most important Old Testament passages that we have in our Bible that Bible teachers and scholars uh, refer to as containing the Davidic covenant, those binding promises that that God binds himself by his own character to David. And in those promises, he promises David rest from his enemies. And even though David wanted to build a house for God, a tabernacle or a temple, God said, I'm going to build a house for you, meaning I'm going to give you a lineage of descendants of kings who will come forth from you. God said, one of your descendants will build a house for me. And we see as we keep going in the scripture that Samuel, David's son, will build the temple for him. But these promises go way beyond the near. Because God said to David, one of your descendants will actually reign on your throne forever and ever over an eternal kingdom. We still wait for that. God said that I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. And based on this passage going forward, Israel started looking for a Messiah. That is a Hebrew word that is, actually it's a transliteration that the the English letters correspond to Hebrew letters. For the actual Hebrew word is Messiah. It means anointed one. This descendant of David the equivalent of which is the Greek word Christos, or Christ, that will sit on David's throne forever. And this passage, this one where the father says, I will be a father to him, he will be a son to me. And then we come to the New Testament and the heavens open and God says as Jesus is being baptized, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. We find that we still look forward to the ultimate coming of these promises that are made in 2 Samuel 7 that will be fulfilled when Jesus returns to earth and sets up his kingdom. David heard these promises, and in the second half of chapter 7 was just overwhelmed with thanks and with praise and confident prayer as he claimed the promises of God. Now what we're going to see in chapter 8 is that God wants to assure David so much that even though these promises ultimately won't find their final fulfillment until the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus himself, reigns over God's kingdom on the Davidic throne, God wants to assure David that these promises are so sure that he starts fulfilling them almost immediately. Remember back in chapter 7 and verse 11, God, through the prophet Nathan, told David, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. As we come to chapter 8, the purpose of chapter 8 is to assure David that that's happening, it's going to continue to happen, and... It will ultimately be fulfilled. 
and your throne and your kingdom will last forever. So as we come to chapter 8, as we read through this chapter together, look for God at work in giving David at least the beginnings of a fulfillment to that promise that I will give you rest from all your enemies. Chapter 8, I'll read it out loud, starting in verse 1. Now after this, it came about that David defeated the Philistines and subdued them, and David took control of the chief city from the hand of the Philistines. He defeated Moab and measured them with the line, making them lie down on the ground, and he measured two lines to put to death and one full line to keep alive. And the Moabites became servants to David, bringing tribute. Then David defeated Hadadezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah, as he went up to restore his rule at the river. David captured from him 1,700 horsemen, 20,000 foot soldiers, and David hamstrung the chariot horses, but reserved enough of them for 100 chariots. When the Arameans of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David killed 22,000 Arameans. Then David put garrisons among the Arameans of Damascus, and the Arameans became servants to David, bringing tribute. The Lord helped David wherever he went. David took the shields of gold, which were carried by the servants of Hadadezer, and brought them to Jerusalem. From Betta and from Bethothai, cities of Hadadezer, King David took a very large amount of bronze. Now when Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated all the army of Hadadezer, Toy sent Joram, his son, to King David to greet him and bless him, because he had fought against Hadadezer and defeated him, for Hadadezer had been at war with Toy. And Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. King David also dedicated these to the Lord with the silver and gold that he had dedicated from all the nations which he had subdued. From Aram and Moab and the sons of Ammon and the Philistines and Amalek, from the spoil of Hadadezer, son of Rehob, king of Zobah. So David made a name for himself when he returned from killing the 18,000 Arameans in the Valley of Salt. He put garrisons in the Edom. In all Edom he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became servants to David. And the Lord helped David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel. And David administered justice and righteousness for all the people. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahalud, was recorder. Zadok, the son of Ahiatub, and Abhimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests. Sariah was secretary. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Sherethites and the Pelethites. And David's sons were chief ministers. God promised David... You will have rest from all of your enemies. And ultimately, that will come 
to its final fruition in the kingdom when David's descendant will sit on David's throne forever and ever. But God lets David get a glimpse of it. He wants David to know now that when he makes a promise to his people, he is going to help his people see that promise come to reality. God helps his people. And we see that here in chapter 8. When God makes a promise, he helps his people see that promise come to reality. I was having a conversation with someone recently just about how much things have changed over my lifetime. When I wrote my master's thesis and turned it in, I typed it out on an IBM Selectric typewriter. And I had the the little ball that fit on it. And then when I put my Hebrew in, I had to leave spaces and then put a Hebrew ball on and type in all of the Hebrew. It wasn't fun. My, how have things changed for the better today. Think about just not that long ago, if you were going to take a trip, you would call a travel agent and say, I need tickets for such and such a a a flight, or I I need tickets to get to this city. And your travel agent would book the trip. Today, travel agents are kind of falling on hard times. People think, I can do this myself. I have the internet. It works great until there's a problem. And if you travel, you know there's probably going to be a problem. The last time my wife Barbara and I traveled internationally, we uh, had our way paid to go to Spain for a conference. And we used a travel agent. I am so glad that we did because our travel agent foresaw issues. And during our trip, when we were in no position to make any changes or to do anything to fix it, Even unbeknownst to us that there were issues, our travel agent fixed it for us and contacted us and said, I've made a change in your itinerary. Oh, was I glad for that travel agent. You see, our travel agent just didn't make a promise of, here's your trip. It's all planned for you. It was a promise that came with help. That's what God does. God never makes a promise to his people without helping his people see that promise come to reality in the lives of his people. He always does. He helps his people. And that's what we see here in chapter 8. That's the purpose of what our human author of this book wants us to see. Now, we're going to look at this section, or this chapter in three sections. The first of which is in verses 1 through 6, then verses 7 through 14, and then verses 15 through 18. Some of the most important words in the entire chapter are the first three little, three little words of verse 1. It simply says, now, after this. 
Now that's a special Hebrew phrase. It's used about 12 times in the Old Testament. And it's a transition phrase that makes a tight connection between chapter 7 and chapter 8. Remember, chapter 7 records the promises of God. Now, chapter 8, our human author is saying, now because of these promises, this is what happened. Remember verse 11. I'm going to give you rest from your enemies. Now after this, now after this promise, this is what happens. And these recorded military victories that we find in chapter 8 are not necessarily chronologically recorded. But they are thematically recorded for us. Meaning, maybe this battle didn't necessarily happen before this one. But our author puts them together for us so that we can see when God said, I'm going to give you rest from all your enemies, he starts doing it right away. And if God answers part of the promise, I can be assured he's going to answer all of the promise. And he's going to help in seeing that happen. So verse 1 starts out, Now after this, it came about that David defeated the Philistines. Oh, those Philistines. If you remember back to 1 Samuel, the Philistines are the arch rivals of Israel. King Saul never provided any victory over the Philistines. David does. In fact, we're going to see that David finds victory on all sides. We see to the southwest that David defeats the Philistines. And from this point forward, the Philistines are relegated to just a little strip of land along the coast. And they just kind of wither away into oblivion. We see in verses 2 and 3 that David, in verse 4, that David has victory to the east to the Transjordan or across the Jordan River and finds victory. We see down in verses 5, 6, and 7 that David has victory in the north against the Arameans. So he has victory to the south, he has victory to the east, he has victory to the north, and of course to the west is sea. So on all sides, David finds victory. Now, some of these verses may be hard for us. Because we can read them, we say, man, this David's a cruel guy. If you look down in verse 2, it says when he took he conquered the Moabites, he basically made three lines, and two of the three lines are killed, and then the third line are made slaves. Man, that's not very nice. Or he took these horses and he hamstrung them. He, he set, ordered the tendons right above the hooves to be severed so that they could no longer pull a chariot, except enough to pull a hundred chariots. And it's easy for us to look at this from a Western mindset. Say, man, he'd be turned in. Even for his abuse of horses, he'd have to go to jail. But that's a Western mindset. Here, the original readers of this would have said, God is with him. He's given him victory, not only over David's enemies and Israel's enemies, but these are enemies of God himself. God is the victor. And we see that in a refrain that's repeated twice, the first of which is at the end of verse 6. The Lord helped David wherever he went. 
You see, God made a promise. I'm going to go give you peace from all of your enemies. And that promise ultimately will be fulfilled still yet in the future, forever. But God, right from the beginning, assures David, when I make a promise to you, I'm going to start helping you. And that's exactly what we find in verses 1 through 6 in these this record of these military victories. Now, notice with me in verse 6, it says, The Lord helped David wherever he went. The Hebrew word translated helped here in English is a word that means to help, to deliver, to save. It does not mean to pull out of. It does not mean to prevent from ever experiencing. It means that David had to walk through the trouble, but God helped him through. Some of you may have seen these annoying State Farm commercials lately, where there's some guy and his being attacked by a buffalo in Yellowstone, or is maybe his house is filling up with water and he's about ready to drown. And then he sings that annoying, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And they immediately vanish and they end up in some State Farm office. Terribly annoying. But some people have that mentality with God. Like, God is just going to snatch me out. He should just snatch me out of my problems. It's not what God does. That's not what God promises. But when God makes a promise, He helps His people through it. We see that even in the New Testament. In the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul is on his first missionary journey telling people about Jesus. And in chapter 14, starting to read in verse 19, it says, The Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. But while the disciples stood around him, he got up and entered the city. The next day he went away with Barnabas to Derby. After they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of of God. You see, God doesn't say, I'm going to keep you from pain. He doesn't say he's going to keep you from trials. But he does assure us of his help. Each and every one of us in this room, unless you're very, very young, know that life is hard. It's just hard in everyday life. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 gets right down to where we live every day and says to those who are thinking about getting married down in verse 28, he said if it was up to him, he'd say, don't do it because it's hard. He says, if you marry, you've not sinned. If a virgin marries, she's not sinned, yet such will have trouble in this life, and I'm trying to spare you. It's hard. That's why we have a marriage mentoring program here at Faith Bible Church where couples can come alongside of couples because it's hard. Life is hard. Through many tribulations, we're going to go before we enter the kingdom of God. God doesn't say, I'm going to pull you out of it. 
But we see recorded for us here in 2 Samuel 8, verse 6, the Lord helped David wherever he went. You see, when God promises us, he helps us see that promise come to reality. David recognizes it. In fact, in verses 7 down through verse 14, David clearly sees, God's the one who helped me. I didn't do this in my own strength. I don't have that great of ability. God helped me. He made the promise that I'd have rest on all of my enemies, and he's the one that's done it. And so in verses 7 through 14, David acknowledges that. Just like when all of us as God's people, when we recognize the help of the Lord, when we really recognize it, our response is to dedicate that which he provides back to him. And that's what David does. Look at verse 7. David took the shields of gold which were carried by the servants of Hadadezer. Verse 8 says he took a very large amount of bronze. Verse 10 tells us he ends up with articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. Look at that refrain again down in verse 14. The Lord helped David wherever he went. You see, David clearly recognized that God is the one who blessed him. God is the one who gave him victory. And these spoils of war, all of these special metal, metals, these, this, this expensive spoils of war are David's because God provided them. Look at David's response in verse 11. King David also dedicated these to the Lord with the silver and gold that he had dedicated from all the nations which he had subdued. It's a special Hebrew word translated dedicated. It's a word that we say it's from the holiness word group. It means to be holy, to be set apart, to be consecrated. What this is saying is simply all this gold and silver and bronze that David took from his captives, he set it apart to be solely for God's use. He gave it to the Lord. Instead of him saying, hey, I have a new house. I think in my entertainment center it would be cool to have gold walls. He didn't do that. It's the Lord's. Why did he do that? Because he recognized the truth, the refrain that's repeated in verse 6 and 14, that the Lord helped David wherever he went. I have a friend who has been very successful in business. Started a company, sold it. Started another one, sold it. And in the process, has become a wealthy man. The neat thing is that he recognizes that his wealth has come to him from God. That all of the blessing that he has experienced in his life is from the Lord. He has a passion. He and his wife have a passion for horses. They bought a horse ranch. But it's neat to see what he's done with that horse ranch. They recognize those horses are from the Lord. They have set them apart, everything that they have, to be used of the Lord. And so they've started a ministry to children who either have a, a 
physical or emotional or sometimes a, 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 a mental disability that's holding them back in life and gives them opportunity to be with horses and just serves them, gives them opportunities that they may never have and have just turned their home into a respite place to help people. It's kind of what David did here. David says, everything that I have is is from the Lord. God's the one that gave me all of this victory. I'm consecrating this back to Him. It's the same thing that you and I do when we recognize that everything that we have is from the Lord. When we give of our blessing financially, it's really us saying, this is just a token. Everything that I have is from you. There's a verse in James chapter 1, verse 17, that the primary meaning of the verses is talking about the blessings that we have in our salvation. But the words in the verse are all-encompassing words. In James chapter 1, verse 17, it says, Every good thing given, and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shifting shadow. Everything is from the hand of the Lord. You see, David recognizes here that when God makes a promise, he helps his people find that promise come to reality. David recognizes that God is active, that God is helping him. And so he consecrates back to the Lord the spoils of war. And as we come to the end of the section in verses 15 through 18, we see just how sufficient God is. He is all sufficient. He helps his people so much that he actually demonstrates his self-sufficiency by replicating his life in the lives of his people. That's what he's all about. We see this progression in this chapter. Our author of the book wanting to show when God said, I'm going to give you rest from your enemies, I'm going to do it. And he starts doing it right away. David recognizes it's the Lord that's been helping him and consecrates back some of the the spoils of war. And then we come to the end of the chapter in verses 15 through 18, and we see just how sufficient God is. These verses are talking about a reorg. An administrative reorg. Up to this point, the people of Israel have been managed by each tribe of Israel's group of leaders. David brings a centralization to his leadership. And it tells us in verses 15 through the end of the chapter that he appoints generals and recorders and priests and secretaries and advisors. But what I want us to note is just in one verse in verse 15. 
Verse 15 says, So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and righteousness for all his people. Now that's an important phrase. This phrase is repeated throughout the Old Testament. And ultimately we will see that it's actually a characterization of an, of the attributes of God. We see in 1 Kings chapter 10 verse 9 that the queen of Sheba makes a visit to David's son Solomon and makes an important astute evaluation of why Solomon is king. And in verse 9 it says, Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you to set you on the throne of Israel, because the Lord loved Israel forever. Therefore he made you king to do justice and righteousness. Our same little phrase. If you go over to the book of Isaiah in the 33rd chapter, we see a glimpse into this promised kingdom, this kingdom that will last forever and ever. And in 33.5, it says that the Lord is exalted in the eternal earthly kingdom. The Lord is exalted. He dwells on high. He has filled Zion with justice and righteousness. Ultimately, we see God's sufficiency in David's life demonstrated in God's character being replicated in David's life. Turn with me over to Jeremiah chapter 9. These are verses that would be good to put to memory. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 through 24. Thus says the Lord... Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. You see what's happening is God is demonstrating his sufficiency. When he makes a promise to his people, he comes along and helps them. In fact, his sufficiency is so great that ultimately his character is replicated through the lives of his people and not just for David. You remember John chapter 15? That central passage on living out the Christian life where Jesus says, compares himself to a vine and us as the branches and, and says that, hey, apart from me, you guys can't do anything. And in verse 5, it says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, what's the fruit? The fruit is the very character, the very life of Jesus. He's the vine. The fruit is Christ-likeness. It's the believer finding all sufficiency in the person of Jesus Christ, abiding in Him, and then Christ replicating His life through the life of the believer. 
so that when someone sees the believer who abides in the vine, he sees Christ in the believer. God demonstrates His sufficiency by replicating His character in the lives of His people. That's the ultimate statement of His help. I have fish in my office. I have for about the last 15 years. One of the reasons why I have fish is that little kids come and say, Pastor Steve, can I feed the fish? And if they're the first ones there that day, I say yes. They've already been fed today, by the way. And they're peaceful. My wife is a school secretary. Over 2,000 kids in her school. And uh, they gave her a fish tank this year. Why? Because so many parents come in and scream at her that the fish are to be a calming effect. And so I have fish for the kids. And once in a while, just to have a calming effect. Now, I had a 10-gallon aquarium. I wanted to really get into this a little bigger, so I bought a 55, and I got it in a kit. And in the kit, it comes with a heater that's supposed to be sufficient for the tank. Now, the particular fish I wanted to raise are a little persnickety. They like the temperature to always stay the same. So I have it set at a constant 80 degrees. And before I actually put fish in there, I was coming into the office in the morning when our furnace would cut back a lot at night. And I noticed that the water would be like 4 or 5 degrees less in temperature than it was supposed to be. And then I'd turn off the furnace, it would come on, and then the water would come up. You see, the heater said that it would be sufficient, but it wasn't. God says he'll be sufficient, and he is, always. He doesn't make a promise without coming alongside and helping his people see that promise come to reality. And ultimately, his all-sufficiency is demonstrated in his replicating the, his character through the life of the believer so that the believer actually demonstrates the attributes of their God. Just like David here saying that he reigned all over his over all Israel and administered justice and righteousness. You see, when God makes a promise to his people, he helps them so the promise becomes reality. You know this morning we've had communion, we've talked a lot about Jesus Christ and how in Him we can be in right relationship with God. And you may be here today, and you're not sure if you are or not. I would encourage you, at the end of the service, we have a room right directly behind you. It says prayer room above it. In there we have some material. If you're not sure about your standing with God, just stop in there for a second. One of our elders will be back there, and he can just hand you some material. You don't even have to stop and talk if you don't want to, where you can go and look up in your own Bible verses that show you how you can be in right relationship with God. Or maybe you're here today, and you're saying, you bet I know life is hard. I'm I'm in the midst of it. And you just want to pray. Take a few minutes after the service, and go back in the prayer room and just spend some time praying. Father, we thank you for your word. 
We thank you that you are a God, when you make a promise, you help your people find that promise become reality. We praise you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.